Well, thank you, musical team. Really appreciate you leading us in worship. And for how many was that a new song for? I figured a good number because there was only me and two other people singing, I think. But um, it's a good song. Uh, that is sung sometimes in our uh, Church at Five service as well. It's on the, the list there. So uh, a good song with some, with some good words. Let's pray and uh, let's come before the Lord with expectant hearts to hear from him this morning. Father, we thank you that you do speak to us so clearly through your word. You speak to us in many other ways, through your creation, through um, others in our lives that you uh, bring into our lives who speak into them, uh, through those who read and write with words that we ourselves can't come up with, but we understand and we hear from you. Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks and who communicates. So we ask that our ears will be open, our hearts will be soft to hear from you this morning. Minister to us, Holy Spirit, in specific ways that each one needs here. There are a range of needs. And so we ask that you would do a miraculous work in our hearts, that we would be spoken to by you, comforted, challenged, encouraged, uplifted, whatever it is that we need this morning. We ask this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a new year is before us today and uh, myself along with many other pastors and leaders no doubt have been waiting for this year for a long time because we get to talk about 2020 vision or vision 2020. Uh, now that may be not a joke to many of you but uh, to those of us uh, in the loop it certainly is funny. Um, five years ago or four years ago we were looking at uh, future strategic plan for the college, Tari Christian College and uh, hey presto, what about vision 2020? Uh, and it was a sort of standing joke. Uh, it did develop into something more tangible, but uh, there you have it. We're here, 2020. But it's a little bit uh, strange this morning, I feel, in preparing for this Sunday. And typically we like to launch a new year with something that uh, really inspires us and throws our focus forward to what the Lord's going to do in our midst, to what uh, we're going to partner with the Lord uh, in our community and through our church um, but it didn't quite feel right at the start of this year. Uh, as you know, we are in considerable uh, disastrous times, you know, not only in New South Wales, but in Victoria, South Australia. And as we've said, these, these fires have come on top of an already premature, uh, or an already intense drought, but, but it's a premature and intense fire season too. And it's only really just begun. And uh, I don't know about you, but I've perhaps been way too engaged with TV and media and social media uh, as we've sought to be informed about what's happening. And we've witnessed on our TVs and we've heard in our news an awful lot of suffering, haven't we? An awful lot of suffering. We've witnessed fear. We've seen anger and frustration uh, as this fire situation worsens, almost it seems, on a daily basis. And Coupling with that, trying to discern what's just um, hysterical media um, whip up to try and make something bigger than it perhaps is going to be, um, and all the politics that gets involved as well. What do we make of this as Christian people? It got me thinking, what do we make of disasters as Christian people? How ought we respond? And uh, I feel the Lord really laid on my heart a word this morning from His word from the book of Romans, and uh, I want to share that with you this morning. Because no doubt many of us have seen the full range of responses to this disaster. Some have been uh, extremely unhelpful, unproductive, 
in the midst of great suffering. And we've seen some people responding by taking opportunity of people's uh, difficulty and trauma. Uh, one lady had left her home and went to save her family and her horses. She left on horseback, came back to find her house had been completely looted uh, by neighbours, presumably, or outsiders, who knows. People taking opportunities uh, to rob and to steal, taking advantage of others' misery. Um, others go on attack and make accusations against government leaders and emergency service workers as they vent their fear and frustrations. We saw that in our own area with roadblocks and police and RFS uh, telling people for their own safety and their own sake uh, not to go into an area and people going toe-to-toe uh, out of frustration. Emotions run high, don't they, at these times? Emotions run high during times of great suffering. And these are very real threats, not playing them down at all. Some of these responses might be unhelpful, but they are most definitely understandable. And that too adds to the tension and how we respond and how we balance this. We don't want to condemn people for the way they're responding. It is what it is. It's that painful. It evokes that kinds of response, even if they're unhelpful ones. Well, it struck me how important it is for those of us as God's people um, to perhaps think from God's perspective, or hear from God's perspective at least, of what's going on here. You see, the questions behind a lot of the blaming and a lot of the, um, the, the angst at leadership, I think, is because we always want answers as to why. We want to know why something is happening. And we expect those who take up and step into roles of leadership to be able to tell us. Uh, we want to know what's happening, uh, and we also want to know who, who's responsible for what's happening. We want to know why it's happening, what's actually happening, and who's responsible for why and for what's happening. Who can fix this? Who can fix this so it doesn't happen again? Well, I want to suggest this morning that without knowing God's story, without being plugged into and reminded and feeding our minds and our hearts on God's story, on God's account of history, His story, and of His very real actions and purposes within that, we won't ever have any truly satisfactory understanding of why these kinds of things happen. We won't know what to do that's appropriate, and we certainly don't know who it is that we can look to to help us in these sorts of times. We are only left with our raw emotions of anger, fear, frustration, and blame game and finger-pointing. We look for the most convenient of scapegoats, whoever's standing in our way. Now, we've heard from all the politicians. We've heard from all the experts in fire and environmental management. We've heard from the professionals who study fires and their causes and their patterns. We've heard from people right in the midst of even great danger to themselves and their properties who try to make some sense of why it's all happening. And so this morning, we want to hear from God's Word. I want to speak to you this morning from God's Word, from God's perspective, according to how He's revealed it to us. I just want to say this morning that I don't pretend for a moment um, and won't be discussing my position on scientific evaluations of climate change and, and all the other um, myriad of reasons. It's an incredibly complex issue. There's not one reason, humanly speaking, as that's behind all this, and I'm certainly no professional or environmental expert in that sense. But I am a Christian, and like most of us in this room, we look to, and we need to look to, God to hear what He has to say. And we do that through the means that He most authoritatively speaks, and that's through His Word, because that's what the Bible is. It's God's Word 
to us. What a wonderful encouragement uh, Barbara, our elder, uh, shared with us this morning as we come to pray. Let's turn to God's Word to hear. Well, last Sunday, uh, if you were here, we had our annual Share Sunday, and uh, I was really encouraged once again um, at those that shared. Thank you for building us up and edifying us and sharing of what the Lord's done in your life. And for, in many ways, some of you uh, challenged different ones of us, and uh, you probably didn't even realise you were doing it. It was wonderful how the Lord speaks through his people as well. And so we finished our service last Sunday looking at a small section in Romans chapter 8. And I want for us to look further at Romans chapter 8. I want for us to look uh, more deeply at some of the things that I think will help us gain God's perspective as we face uh, these disasters that we're gripped by at the moment. Romans was a letter written by the Apostle Paul. It's an amazingly profound letter written to outline a big picture view of life uh, from God's perspective. That's what Paul set out to do. Paul was a visionary. There's no question about that. And that's why God uh, grabbed his heart um, and converted him from one path and one understanding of God to God's complete understanding in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, He's still to this day, for those that may have any doubt, uh, heralded as one of the most uh, intellectually rigorous writers uh, of all time, up there with all the other great philosophers. And his word um, to us, as he's writing God's word, Um, continues to be um, a great encouragement and a great challenge and something that stimulates our thinking. So this is a big picture view of life in our world. And it's a big picture view of how God works within our world, how God has worked, how God uh, um, continues to work and how God um, will always go on working. And the first seven chapters sees Paul explaining some very deep theological topics about God and in particular about Israel, God's special people at the time as well as topics uh, about the rest of the world, the Gentile world, people like you and I, presumably the majority of us here who aren't uh, part of Israel. Um, He outlines how God's plan was actually for all humanity, right from the beginning, um, to be drawn to him, that God was always about drawing to himself a people. Uh, But early on, those people who God created, right from the start, rebelled against him and And uh, they decided that rather than look to their creator for direction and for leadership and authority, that they would look inward to themselves, that they didn't need God. And every single one of us have been born into that state ever since. We've rebelled against God. Uh, We think that our thinking is better than his thinking. Our wisdom is smarter and wiser than his wisdom. And so we go about life our own way, going about things in our own strength, relying on our own intellect, our own abilities. Well, obviously, these sorts of efforts are really futile. Paul knew that, himself being an intellect and who prided himself about his religious commitment as well as his intellect before he met Christ. Uh, Because the reality is that we were never created to be individual soul heroes and um, the lords of our own destiny. That's God's place. That's his part in our lives as the one who created us for his glory. And so with that choice to go at life on our own, in our own strength, Romans chapter 1 and the preceding chapters following the chapters that follow, uh, they highlight the fertility of that kind of living. Uh, They point out um, not only the futility of living separate to God and rebelling to God, but they also point out that there are consequences to that living, that God is a just and fair God and He's a righteous God, a holy God, who cannot just turn a blind eye to rebellion and those who go it alone, aside from His rightful place, as the creator. 
And so we read also about this justice of God that must be met. And uh, one of the amazing things, of course, is we get to this wonderful outline of God's amazing grace in the way he chooses to be just towards our rebellion. God is a merciful God and he gives us his very own son. He himself, in that wonderful, miraculous mystery that no one can explain, he becomes a human being in the person of Jesus, his own son, and he enters into our world. God up close, in the flesh, able to know and experience everything that we've ever gone through, but with one significant difference, and that is that he lived his life as a man without sin, without rebellion against God. In fact, the scriptures make it clear, and his life is evidence, that unlike any of us, God, as Jesus, lived the life of obedience. He lived a holy life, as God intended for all of us to live in the first place. And that wasn't walking around in white robes, hiding behind some religious uh, facade. That was in the nitty-gritty of everyday living. A holy life that was obedient to God in the real world. Well, that's God's gift to the world in Jesus. And it was to put right all the wrong that we've done. To deal with his own perfect justice towards human rebellion. And in so doing, he absorbed into himself the deserved punishment for our rebellion and our sin. He did that on our behalf. He did that while we were still far from him. While we were still far away from him, it says in Romans chapter 5. The innocent punished for the guilty. The sinless for the sinful. And in so doing, Jesus secured for all of us who would trust him and rely upon him a second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and so on chance at right relationship with him. Well, by the time chapter 8 comes around, some of you are worried, you thought, oh, he's only up to chapter 1. What are we going to do? By the time chapter 8 comes around, Paul has tried to answer a stack of questions that God's people have. I mean, they are truly scratching their head, Israel. They're wondering what on earth Paul thinks God is up to. Does this, is this a new plan? Is this changed? Has God reneged on the promise he made to them? And Paul says, absolutely not. God has fulfilled the promise he's made to them in the person of Jesus. All those that come to faith in Christ, Jew, Gentile, Israelite, non-Israelite, whoever you are, we come to faith in Jesus, the perfect Israel. And we form God's new people, the perfect Israel, the church of Jesus Christ. And Romans 8 concludes... Uh, by answering all of those questions that God's people have. Like, What's God up to? What about sin in our lives? We still struggle with it. If God's made all of everything right, why do I still struggle with sin? Why is the world still in rebellion? Why do people and bad people still seem to win? Why do all these things happen if this gospel, this good news of Jesus is so powerful? And he concludes at the beginning of Romans chapter 8. Let's have a look at it together. Romans chapter 8, the first two verses. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the living, of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Despite all the questions, all the threats to God's goodness, there's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Put your faith and trust in him and you belong to him. This truly is good news, right? It really is good news that despite all the things that go on in the world that threaten what we know about God, his goodness, his sovereignty, his power, his mightiness, as we've sung, his ability uh, to, uh, to be good in our lives, all the things that threaten that, that cause us to doubt that's actually real, they no longer condemn us. We're not condemned if we choose to still doubt, even if we still have those niggling questions about what God's up to. There is no condemnation 
for those who belong to Christ Jesus. But let's look at what's further said on in the chapter about who we are now as those who belong to Christ Jesus. Who we are now as freed men and women from the power of sin that leads to death. A few points this morning. The first one is really important to understand our identity as God's children. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 to 16. If you've got your Bibles, uh, follow along. I'm reading from the New Living Translation this morning. Uh, it reads easier. Uh, it helps in, uh, us understand Romans a little better too. So um, read along and that'll be slightly different if you've got your NIV. Uh, it's still God's Word. Verses 15 to 16. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves to sin and, and to the law. Instead, you received God's Spirit when He adopted you as His own children. Now we call Him Abba Father, and for His Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are, in fact, God's children. This is our identity in Jesus Christ. We are adopted children of God, which makes a world of difference to how we might respond to disasters in this life of any kind. You see, we're not alone. If our identity is adopted children in the Creator God's, the holiest of holy God's uh, family, then we're not alone when we face these sorts of things. We're not abandoned children left to fend for ourselves. Rather, we are fairly and squarely full participants in God's new family. We're adopted children of God. You know, some of the pain, some of the hurt and the utter hopelessness that we've heard on the news from people being interviewed about what these fires have done to them it comes out of lives, I need to say this, and it's not a judgment, it's, it's an obvious um, thing you can notice. It comes out of lives who don't have that same secure assurance of who they can be in Jesus Christ. It really doesn't. And I've heard the difference, and I know some of you have too. We've seen it in our own community. We've heard it amongst those that have suffered even in our own church. The difference is, is amazing. The way people speak often reveals that their hope and their security has been in a stack of other things that have been taken away from them and they are literally left with nothing in their minds and with where they're at. Others have lost the same stuff, but they respond differently. And it's not just a matter of sticking a geranium in your hat and thinking, and, and thinking happy thoughts. Um, that's a quote from a book, a book from the 80s. I've never read it. Awful book. Um, Maybe it was an encouragement to you. Sorry if it was. But it's not just a sort of pie-in-the-sky, sort of fake, happy, let's-be-happy stuff. It's this amazing difference that, that you'll notice when you see it and the way people respond. The media certainly don't show a whole lot of them. And they won't show it because they want to see the pain. They want to see the utter hopelessness. They want to exploit that for all they can. But when you hear someone respond out of their identity in Christ, out of their identity in God... It is absolutely remarkable at the difference. Same hurt, same pain, same suffering, a different response. Can you imagine uh, hearing that from someone who knows that they are an adopted child of God? It would be great. The media aren't going to show us, but wouldn't it be great to hear one? Well, firstly, let's be reminded of who we are. We are God's children. We're loved dearly by Him. We're fully adopted into His family through His Son. Our lives are not our own. They belong to Him the one who created us, the one who knows us intimately, the one who has saved us and brought us fully into his family. And when you think about what it means to be part of a family, it means that we too are heirs to the same inheritance as the real son, as 
Father God's real son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We share in exactly the same inheritance. We're heirs to that. Listen to the next part of the passage as Paul explains further of our identity. Um, God's glory, you see, is our future hope. This is what he says in verse 17. He says, and since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. You see, we're now joint heirs with Jesus, God's son. And our inheritance is and our inheritance will be God's glory. Notice there's both a present tense and a future tense. Um, Just as if we were part of a loving and wealthy family in our earthly lives. Um, I'm not going to ask anyone to put their hands up who might be part of that, but um, certainly, you know, not anything of significant wealth. But in that same way, we'd be assured, wouldn't we, of, of inheriting the family's estate if we were in that family. We would be assured of it. We'd be sharing the family's estate, but it's not an estate that we grab hold of fully in the here and now, otherwise we'd be taking that which isn't quite yet ours. There's a future element to it. We'd be heirs of the estate in the present based on our belonging to the family, but we wouldn't receive the inheritance until sometime in the future. And our inheritance as children of God is going to be God's glory, which is a future hope that Paul wants to keep before everyone's eyes and in their minds. Have a look as he continues in the rest of uh, verse 17 to 18. He says, But if we share in his glory, we must also share his suffering. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. Here's the bit we might struggle with most in this life. This is the repeated guarantee that to be a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to be a follower of Jesus, to be a fully devoted disciple, fully adopted as a member of God's family, it'll mean suffering and experiencing suffering just like he did in his life here on earth, in this present life. Suffering will be a part of this life. It always has been and it always is and it always will be until the ultimate revealing of God's glory. And that will happen in the future. God's glory is our future hope and suffering will be our very real present struggle. But here's the good news as the passage continues. We're not alone in this. You see, we're actually in the same position as the creation itself. You see, the creation awaits eagerly also for our future hope. Have a look from verse 19. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. We're not alone. It's not just humans that are suffering here in this present suffering because all of the creation is also suffering and waiting eagerly for the revealing of our future hope. You notice the difference? The creation isn't held responsible for their suffering, but we are. You see the difference? It says against its will, the creation suffered. Against its will, the creation suffered. Our will as human beings, we chose to go life our own way and the consequences were devastating and that included affecting the creation around us. The trees, the rocks, the beaches, the forests, the bush, all living creatures are hanging out for that glorious day to come. 
I know that's bizarre because we can't interview them and find out what they really think, but that's what, that's what this big picture of, uh, of Paul's vision in God's Word is telling us, that they too are hanging out for that glorious day to come. And it'll be a day where we as God's children will be free from death and decay, as will the creation in which we live will no longer experience and suffer death and decay. I want to tell you this, and I want to be really explicit. Next time you see images on the TV, those horrific images of destruction, those towering infernos, and most of us here, I know some certainly have, but, you know, they're upsetting even just watching them on TV. Can you imagine being in front of them? And I know others, some here have actually been in front of them. Every time you see them roar up and consume greenery and God's beauty, I want you to remember this. Think about this passage. Yes, the creation is suffering. Yes, our environment is suffering unfairly and horribly against its will. It's been subjected to it. But the suffering it experiences, just like ours, will one day be no more. And the creation knows this. The creation knows this. The creation eagerly awaits for our future hope, the glory of God in all its fullness. I want to be clear this morning, this doesn't mean that we just sit back and let it burn. It doesn't mean that we uh, don't fight hard to protect and save it as best we can. But it does mean even in the midst of these events, we hold on to hope. We don't utterly despair in hopelessness. We don't look to blame or demand unrealistic accountability from community leaders or rant and rage on convenient social media platforms at the perceived failures of others. No, we listen to the creation itself, which does what? It groans. The creation cries out. It groans in the duress that it's suffering. But it does so knowing there's glorious hope to come one day. You can tell, uh, those who are visiting, you can always tell when I've been up late at night, I get a little bit more emotionally um, transparent. So um, there we go, there's the joke to crack it and I'll try and clear my eyes and keep going. But we listen to the creation. And I love the image, it's a beautiful image, isn't it? It kind of counts 50% of us out, but for those who've experienced childbirth and those who've witnessed it, Um, It's that beautiful image of that groaning, that pain in the midst of unbearable, unimaginable suffering. But that hope that's to come, that new life that'll be born soon. And all creation awaits eagerly for that future hope. And so do we. We too groan, just as the creation does. Have a look as he continues in verse 23. He says, and we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as the foretaste of that future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will forgive us our full rights, will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies that he has promised us. Church, you and I are called by Jesus to live in the strength and power of his presence in this world. His presence being the Holy Spirit that's been gifted to us. And just like the creation, we await eagerly for our new bodies, which will be free from the ravages of sin and which will not uh, know any suffering again. And you know what? The presence of the Holy Spirit living in us is, is God giving us a foretaste of that glory. 
of that life that is yet to fully come. It's not just all future, it's something that can be known and experienced in glimpses, in part, through the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. Elsewhere, you know, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is God's down payment. He's God's promise. He's God's seal that what He has promised to give us will happen and be fully realised one day. Think about how awesome that is. If you're a Christian this morning, you have God's Holy Spirit living in you as a down payment, as the assurance that God will fulfill what he has promised to fulfill, that he will, one day in the future, we will only know his full glory and be in it. It's a great truth to be reminded of at the start of the new year. What an amazing deposit that God would give us and instill in us. Own it, know it, believe it, take hold of it, accept it and live in the power and reality of it. Some of you may be wondering, well, when, when does this happen? When, when did this happen? I, I've been coming to church for a while and I don't, I've never, I've, it's been a mystery to me. I've never understood. I haven't felt the Holy Spirit in me. I've seen it, what appears to be in others and I don't feel like I've got it. Here's an amazing assurance. You ready? It's not about how you feel. Have a look as Romans chapter 8 and verse 23 continues. It happens at the point of our salvation. We were given this hope when? We were given this hope when we were saved. We were given this hope when we were saved, when you have made a declaration, a decision, when you have stated your faith and acceptance of who Jesus is, you have been given the Holy Spirit at that point and he lives in you. You don't have to feel for something, you don't have to keep longing and hankering after and getting something else, you already have him. You need to grow that relationship with him, listen to him and practice the spiritual disciplines as you read and pray and worship and fellowship with other believers. You know, sometimes we tend to hanker after something that we demand to have fully right now, don't we? I, I know that's what I'm certainly like. If I've been promised something, well, hurry up and deliver. You know, <laughs> you've said it, so where is it? Um, sometimes that's what we do. It's, it's a bit like a child in the lead up to Christmas, right? You know, you've got the Christmas present. They know it's theirs. You've bought it for them. You've even wrapped it up and put it under the tree. And then you've told them, not yet. There's a day coming, right? Christmas Day is when we'll open our presents. I can remember once uh, doing this myself as a kid um, and I was hanging out for a particular Christmas present. I was convinced I knew what it was and I was right, um, very perceptive. I think it was a bike from memory that my dad tried to wrap up and sort of half hide behind the curtains. Uh, but I can remember having to take hold of that which was not yet mine and have a little peek. And I did that and it was very clever incredibly clever, very stealthy. I don't to this day think my parents knew that I did this and we're not recording this morning. Um, but curiosity got the better of me and I peaked. And it was exactly what I'd hoped and longed for. But guess what happened on Christmas Day when it came to opening that present? I had to fake joy. I had to fake genuine first-time excitement. And it didn't taste anywhere near as good as it probably could have if I'd waited. And that is what Paul's getting at here in that passage, that last little bit of verse 25. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. You see, patience will mean not demanding something from God that we expect right now, even though we know it's what he's promised. But confidence is knowing that what is to come is guaranteed and will be a reality that we can hold on to. 
in this life. But even more than just a down payment or a foretaste of future glory, the Holy Spirit, as we're told in John's Gospel, is a personal counsellor. He's a comforter who has an active role to play in our lives. And Paul continues in verse 26 to 27, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. If you take nothing away this morning from this message, please take this away. Because as Barbara said, it's definitely a theme uh, that we picked up this morning that we just don't know how to pray sometimes, do we? We don't know what to say. I had someone say to me, um, I'm actually really annoyed at God at the moment. This just has got to stop. And I agree, that's a fair and totally understandable reaction response. Because we know he can stop it. We know he can change it. We know he's powerful and we know he's called us to pray and to come humbly before him. And we don't know why he's chosen not to and why it seems to continue to rage and get out of control. But we have to hold on to the fact that even telling God or telling others how we're feeling about God is still an expression of valid faith. It's what the Psalms are full of. And Paul affirms it here, doesn't he? That the Holy Spirit's role is to intercede between our hearts that often feel completely disconnected from God in times like this. And we can rest assured that he is interceding for us. And so even just coming before God in silence, be still and know that I am God, is actually a war cry from the Psalms. It's a war cry. It's a declaration to, to, to nations and the enemies of God that rise up and threaten his sovereignty. Be still. Stop and know that I'm God. So be still and know that he's God and trust that the Holy Spirit is doing his role. He understands and he helps and he speaks to God using groans, words that we cannot even come up with or think about or, or our tongues are tied, stuck to the roof of our mouths. We know that prayer is a very real communication with God. And even though we don't know what to say, there is someone who does. He hears our hearts. He hears our pain. He's even experienced it in Jesus Christ. He hears our cries and our hurts, our despair and our heartache at what's happening. And he listens. And he's promised us everything that we need and that we look forward to one day in the future. Let's pray. Father God, we are your children through Jesus Christ. And we come before you at this first Sunday of a new year to declare our trust in you as the one true living God. Thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit to live in us, making a work in us to, to make us more like Jesus. We thank you for the very real hope that we have for that future day, which will turn our mourning into joy and our ashes into beauty. For those suffering in our state and in our country, we pray for your mercy. We ask for your presence to be made real in communities and neighbourhoods, especially through your people, those in whom you live and dwell. May we have the compassion and the courage to support those who are angry, 
those who are despairing and who are genuinely hopeless in the face of these disasters. And may we be humble enough to learn, to listen, to discover ways in which we can live better and more aware of our sin-sick world, which itself is joining with us as your children in anticipation of that great day to come. Father, please comfort and empower us through your Holy Spirit within us. We thank you for the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus, our Saviour and our Brother, in whom we are joint heirs in your kingdom. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.